We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Second Corinthians 11, verses 16 through 33. Second Corinthians 11, verses 16 through 33. And that is Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. I repeat, let no one think of me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Emmaus. My name is Sam. I am one of the pastors here at Emmaus, and I'm glad uh, to be with you, to be continuing on in our journey through 2 Corinthians. I just have one announcement for you, and that is that our membership weekend is coming up in a couple of weeks, February 7th and 8th. Um, If you are interested in joining Emmaus and um, looking to make this your church home, then that is the first step in our membership process. But it's also a good weekend to go to, a a good weekend class to go to if you're just curious about um, church membership or how we do church membership here at Emmaus. And so, um, so you can sign up for that on our website. There should be more information 
um, in the handout that you received and just more information generally of announcements that I don't have time to get into right now. So um, look at the the handout that we gave you. And uh, with that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this passage together. Triune God, as we read these words of your servant Paul, who spent his life and suffered greatly for the advancement of your gospel, our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters who have been sent out from our midst to hard places. We praise you for the faithfulness of Glenn and Carrie Higgins and Corey and Jamie Chaplin, who hold fast to the gospel in the post-Christian contexts of Seattle, Washington and Bristol, Rhode Island. Keep them faithful. Keep them content in Christ. We praise you for the faithfulness of our sister Darian, who persistently labors in the dry, spiritually barren deserts of North Africa, bringing spiritual water to the Muslim women there who are thirsty for truth. Give her joy in obedience. Let her feel your approval as she spends herself for the gospel. We praise you for the faithfulness of Mariella, who is laboring to learn how to speak the heart language of the people in South Asia so that she can tell them about Jesus Christ in their own tongue. Give her faithfulness as she continues to prepare and give her boldness to speak of the glories of Christ to the people there. And Lord, keep our hearts knit together with these brothers and sisters and may more of us spend and be spent for the advancement of your gospel. And now we consecrate this time over to you. Speak, Lord Jesus, through me, for we do not need musings from a mere man this morning. We need to hear our good shepherd. We long to hear our good shepherd. So Spirit, give us ears to hear and do your work in us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So today, we are going to watch Paul do something uh, very awkward. It's uncomfortable for us to listen to, and it's just as uncomfortable for Paul to engage in, if not more so. This section of 2 Corinthians contains some of the most biting sarcasm you will find in all of Scripture. And Paul is reluctant to use this tone with the Corinthians. He didn't want to, as Pastor Josh pointed out last week, but evidently their affections for him had grown so cold and their influence, the the influence of the false apostles there had grown so great that Paul was forced to use extreme measures. And so his sarcastic tone in this passage is like the, the bucket of icy cold water that he dumps on them to jolt them out of their sleepy indifference. And we have to acknowledge this morning that this is holy satire. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul uses the rhetorical device of sarcasm. And if we're honest, this makes some of us uncomfortable, right? It rubs us the wrong way. We feel strange when we come across sarcasm in Scripture. If we're honest, some of us have a problem with Elijah's mocking tone when he mocks the, pri- the priests of Baal who tried to summon their God, their false God with elaborate ceremony and nothing to show for it. So they go through this whole process trying to get Baal to show up and Elijah stands off and he jeers at them. 
He makes fun of them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. He's saying, maybe Baal's asleep and you need to wake him up. Maybe he's too far away and you need to yell a little bit louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom and you just need to wait for him to come out. He's making fun of them. And this is strange for some of us. We, we have to make peace with the fact that God inspires and authorizes a sanctified sarcasm in certain situations. Now, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. This does not mean that we are invited, therefore, to sink into cynicism and speak sarcastically all the time. If our age has any temptations regarding sarcasm, it is overuse. We tend to think that sarcasm is a quick reactionary thing, but it's not here in this passage. But what that does mean is this passage means that we don't have the luxury of ruling out satire as an illegitimate form of rebuking communication. It is used intentionally in this passage and carefully for this purpose, to expose the folly of idolatry. That's what it's used for. In fact, whenever satire is used in Scripture, it is used in this way. The prophets, Paul, and even Christ himself used sarcasm to illustrate and expose idolatry for the fool's gold that it is. We may not belittle people. Hear me say that. We may not belittle people, but we must belittle idolatry. Sometimes we expose idolatry with a deadly seriousness, right? With gravity, we show it to be that viper that's hiding in the bushes. That is Proverbs 26.4. We don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest we become like him, Okay? But sometimes we expose idolatry by laughing at it. We show that for all its verbosity and impressiveness, in comparison to the glory and majesty of God, it is a silly, pitiful little thing. Like, oh, look at that idolatry trying to compete with God and his glory. Right? That is Proverbs 26, 5, which says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he think himself wise. So that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's reluctant to do so. It doesn't give him any pleasure, right? This isn't feeding any sort of fleshly indulgence for him to to switch into this sarcastic tone. But the Corinthians are stuck in a delusion, thinking themselves wise when they are actually being foolish. And so Paul embodies their folly for them. And he, he shows them how ridiculous it looks. He becomes their mirror, showing them how unbecoming boasting is. But he does even more than that. Because in this passage, he's actually going to subvert their standards and flip their criteria for boasting on its head. Now remember, the Corinthians, the Corinthian church, has the same um, hindrances and burdens as the Corinthian culture. Their thinking was that fleshly, boastful, prideful, self-aggrandizing displays of human strength was glorious. They placed undeserved merit in human strength and power and success and financial security and self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-promotion. 
That's what they boasted in. And they were foolish to do so because, as Paul has labored to demonstrate all throughout this letter, the glory that comes from that kind of living is a pathetic rival to the glory of God. So he begins this passage by being like them, showing them how ridiculous they look, and thereby jolting them out of their folly. And then he turns the tables on them, and he shows them where glory really comes from, and that is being weak for Christ. So let's begin in verse 16 as Paul is careful to explain what he's about to do. He says in verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being so wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. There is serious bite in these words. He says in verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. That is, for what I'm about to do. I am about to act like a fool, okay? But don't believe that I actually am one. I'm only pretending, is what he's saying. But even if you do, verse 17 says, accept me as a fool. That is, even if you do think that I'm truly foolish and that I'm not acting here, you should still hear me out. And this shouldn't be a problem for you because, verse 19 says, you gladly bear with fools, being so wise yourselves. He's saying you're already used to putting up with fools, so it shouldn't be a problem at all for you to put up with my folly. You're experts at putting up with foolishness. He then shows them why they are foolish for preferring the kind of leadership that they are accepting from these super apostles over the kind of leadership they received from Paul. Verse 20 says, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts you on airs or strikes you in the face, which is the kind of leadership that you get when you place a high premium on boasting. You get abusive bullies. If what you want out of a leader is a shining display of boastful human arrogance and strength, that's what you're going to get. And that kind of leader steamrolls over people. That's what was happening. So Paul is saying, I'm so sorry, Corinthians, for being too weak to bully you. And then he begins his fool's speech, starting here in verse 22, that goes all the way into next week's passage. It ends in chapter 12, but it begins here in verse 22. This is him stepping into the shoes of the, the foolish person, and he boasts like they are boasting. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Right? He, he can't help but tell them that this is all just a big show, okay? I'm not really, I don't really want to boast in this way. This is where Paul is playing their game on their terms, and he's showing the folly of boasting. It is unbecoming. It's embarrassing 
And like I said earlier, he is acting like a mirror showing the folly of idolizing fleshly criteria for success. He's saying, don't I look ridiculous when I act like this? This is how you all look when you, when you are buying into the kind of boastful arrogance of these super apostles. But then he takes an interesting turn. And this is where he flips their criteria on its head. Right? He's simultaneously showing them how vain it is to look at the exterior signs for legitimacy. And he's also trying to get them to see what exterior signs actually accompany faithfulness. So in other words, he's saying, first of all, you shouldn't even be looking for exterior signs to legitimate, to, to legitimize someone's ministry. But even if you do, the kinds of signs you look for are not the kinds that they're boasting in. They're these kinds of signs. So he says at the end of verse 23, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? He's saying there is emotional investment for these people. I care about how they're doing. Then he says at verse 32, at Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands, which is not the picture of human strength, is it? Can you picture that? Paul curled up in a little ball, let down in a basket from a window to escape from his life. According to the proper criteria, Paul is saying, I could boast your super apostles out of the water. It's not even a competition. I actually have skin in the game. I've been wounded for the gospel. I've been embarrassed for the gospel. What has their ministry ever cost them? Now, it's important to remember that Paul is, is uh, listing off all of these experiences as a rhetorical device to show the folly of boasting. He's, he is boasting in his weakness. He's bragging about these things to prove a point to them. So this is, this is purely for a rhetorical device. But it's also important that we remember these things actually happen to Paul. He's not making any of these things up. We actually learn a lot about God and the Christian life from this list of experiences that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 11. First of all, the life of Paul teaches us about the cost of discipleship. Paul's testimony, more specifically, Paul's testimony obliterates the prosperity gospel. It destroys it. The prosperity gospel says that God wants for nothing more than to see you successful and happy and free from care and suffering. The prosperity gospel says that God promises to make you healthy, that he promises to make you wealthy, that he promises to, to make your adoption into the family of God apparent to all, 
by external trappings and external blessings. The prosperity gospel says that God promises to respond to your financial giving with material possessions, as if it's a trade-off, right? If you give me some of your money, I will give you possessions, which completely fails to recognize that everything we have, including our life itself, is already a gift from God. We have no commodity to trade with him. The prosperity gospel says that there is a direct correlation between the level of your faith and the comfort of your life. And it turns prayer into an incantation. It's not a conversation with God. Prayer for the prosperity gospel is an incantation. It's a password that grants you access into the storehouse of physical comfort. And we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that the prosperity gospel has many faces. Its most brazen manifestations are those preachers on CBN who are constantly asking for your money. Right, those that are shameless about turning God into a cosmic genie who exists for your pleasure and your happiness. Right, those are kind of clear to spot. But the error of the prosperity gospel rears its ugly head in what we might call prosperity gospel light, like L-I-T-E, prosperity gospel light, teaching that mingles Christian jargon and talk about loving Jesus with good vibes and obsession with self-love teaching that coddles sin because it never confronts it, teaching that refuses to warn about the wrath of God for those who stand outside of Christ, teaching that never warns about suffering in the Christian life, the kind of teaching that leaves listeners with the impression that coming to Christ amounts to nothing more than glib sentiments of positivity taps into the error of prosperity gospel because it is all teaching that domesticates God. It domesticates God. It turns him into a bellhop whose job it is to make us happy as opposed to being the dreadfully holy, immutable, almighty, omnipotent, all-wise, all-righteous, ancient of days who created us for his glory instead of the other way around. The life of Paul obliterates the prosperity gospel. Paul's life was anything but comfortable. He was oppressed and ostracized and persecuted. Verse 24 says, For five times I, was, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He experienced real poverty and circumstantial suffering, both from the elements and from other people. Right? He says, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, etc. And he was not, this is really important for us in this therapeutic age to get. He was not free from emotional burdens. He was not emotionally carefree. This is really important. Faithfulness for Paul begot anxiety. Faithfulness actually led to anxiety. Verse 28 says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. By the way, this is the joyful cost of a leader giving his heart to the church. It's anxiety for the church. Your pastors feel anxiety for you. We feel anxiety for you and we don't resent it. This is not me complaining 
about the anxiety that we feel for you, asking for you to feel bad for us. We don't resent the anxiety we feel for you because we don't subscribe to the prosperity gospel. Paul did not resent all of the sufferings that he's talking about here because he never for one moment believed that Christ promised him comfort and ease. This is why his boast is the last thing that a prosperity gospel preacher would identify as victorious living. Look at verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Why would he do that? Why would he boast in his weakness? Well, we get the direct answer to this question at the conclusion of his fool's speech in chapter 12, verse 9, where he recounts Jesus saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, the greatest tragedy of all forms of prosperity gospel is not only that it inverts God's purposes, making God exist for our glory instead of the other way around, right? That's a tragedy in a sense, but it is also a tragedy because it impoverishes those who are swayed by it. Those that believe the prosperity gospel are impoverished. They are poor spiritually. They have been robbed of a God who is glorious and powerful and gracious, the true God, the one that can actually save them. It turns Christ merely into a giver of gifts instead of the gift, which brings me to the second lesson we learn from Paul's life, and that is that suffering, the suffering life of Paul, teaches us about the excellencies of Christ. Only someone who loves the excellencies of Christ could look at that list of experiences and say, totally worth it, totally worth it. Paul leans into his weakness over and over again in this book. Whatever the Corinthian culture prized by way of strength and prestige and wealth and boasting, Paul did the opposite of that, to offend them out of their idolatrous values. This is why he refused to let the Corinthians pay him. They cared too much about earthly image, the earthly image of their leaders, and he wasn't about to pamper their obsession with image, right? Pastor Josh talked about this last week. He didn't let them bling him out because he'd rather look drab and poor and Corinth because the last thing the Corinthians needed was a glamorous leader. So he displayed weakness, especially for them. But this is really important. He didn't despise the Corinthian conception of strength because he was a sadist. He didn't love pain for pain's sake. He didn't love weakness as an end in itself. He prized weakness as a means to Christ and his glory. You see, Paul was eager to see the Corinthians' despair of boasting and human strength because he knew that their obsession with human glory was keeping them from Christ and his glory. It was an obstacle to Christ and his glory, which is so much better, so much more beautiful, so much more des deserving of devotion, so much fuller, so much more to be treasured and adored. And this, by the way, this is why we know that Paul 
back in chapter 4, verse 17, was not trivializing pain and suffering when he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Some of us may, be, may feel tempted to be offended by Paul here, to be insulted by Paul. We, we read him say this light and momentary affliction is not even worth comparison to the glory that it's preparing for us. And we say, light? Momentary, Paul? Paul, my suffering doesn't feel light. It feels real. My suffering feels real. And Paul says, yeah, I know it is. And so is the lashings and the beatings and the stonings and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks and toil and hardship and sleepless nights and starvation and exposure and anxiety that I experience. All real suffering. But the glory that all that suffering was preparing me for is more real than the suffering itself. It's more real. You see, Paul's account of his life in chapter 11 shows that his estimation of light and momentary isn't so much a statement about how small earthly suffering is as much as it is a statement of how massive the glory of Christ is, how glorious he is. Our suffering in this life often feels, feels like a mountain, Right? It is imposing and crushing and overwhelming. And that kind of suffering can be dwarfed by one thing and one thing only, and that is the glory of Christ. And this is why we labor so hard every week here at Emmaus to point you to the glories of Christ. It's because we really believe, we actually believe that a spiritual eyeful of the glory of Christ is what you need most. It's what you need most in your trials and your suffering, your failures and your successes. And this is why we are to embrace our weakness because our weakness positions us for Christ. It's only when you realize that you are too weak to win God's favor with your righteousness that you will look to Christ in greedy gratitude for his righteousness. It is only when you realize how weak you are against your sin, how helpless you are to pay off your debt that your sins have, have racked up against God. It's only when you realize how weak you are against all of that that you will look to Christ in desperation for him to pay for your debt for you with his blood. It is only when your weakness and your despair of this fallen world it is only when you despair of this fallen world that you will eagerly look in anticipation for the resurrection, which is secured by Christ and his resurrection. You have to grow increasingly discontent with the fallenness of this world before you will look forward to the resurrection. What I'm trying to say is that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is good news for weak people and only weak people. That's... The, the only people that will appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ are people who need it, weak people, which is all of us. And if you're here today to see what Christians believe, if you're not a Christian, you're just here today to see what Christians believe and you're still searching, I'm glad that you're here. And let me just say, if you have not yet cried out to Christ in confession of your neediness, 
I would simply ask, why not? Why not? Do you not see that you need him? This is what you are made for. So we're begging you to despair of your delusional self-sufficiency. You're not sufficient. You aren't. It's a delusion. Despair. Give up. Give up of your delusional self-sufficiency. You can rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as your Savior. And don't worry about having nothing to offer. He doesn't want anything you could offer anyway. All he wants is your need. So let those words ring in your ear as I as I offer these three pastoral charges to the Christians in this room. Christians, number one, you are charged to crucify the idol of comfort. Put it to death, execute it, kill it. You are not entitled to a comfortable life. You are not owed a comfortable life. Our hope as Christians cannot be that we will have no trouble in this life. Our Lord told us that we would have trouble in this life. Our hope instead ought to be in what he has promised. In this life, you will have tribulation, he said. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The apostle Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God has not promised you ease, Christian. He's promised you that he will never leave you or forsake you. He's not promised you, he's not promised you that you won't suffer. He's promised you that with your suffering, he is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's not promised that you won't suffer. He's promised that you won't suffer in vain. He's promised that he won't waste any of your suffering. So that's the first charge. Crucify the idol of comfort. Charge number two, Christian. You are charged to embrace Christ's power through your weakness. Embrace it. Lean into your weakness like Paul does here. May we beware of ever believing that we have arrived that we finally have our act together. We don't. We don't. We will not arrive on this side of glory. We are always in need. Oh, that we may come to Christ desperate and thirsty, needy, ready to receive, begging to receive. May we look to our sufferings, our weaknesses, our struggles, our burdens, and may we see them all as gifts of God to remind us of how fragile and needy we actually are. I think about the 17th century Puritans. Those who read them think of these men typically as the paragons of godliness and piety, right? They're the spiritual elite in many of our estimation and for understandable reason, right? Because they were indeed entranced by a grand vision of God and his glory. But what was their secret? What was, what was their secret? Was it sheer grit? Was it effort? Was it discipline? Just, just effort? Just try harder? No, the opposite. Their secret was no secret at all. They just knew how desperately needy they were. Their prayers are replete with words like these. 
I am a poor, weak creature, and I fear I will never be able to bear the testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, give me power, for I am poor. I see the sinfulness of sin, so let me See also see the graciousness of grace and the fullness of Christ. I come to you for righteousness because I see my sin is exceedingly sinful. That is not the prayer of a man who has arrived. That's the prayer of a man who despairs of his own power and would rather be weak so that Christ's power may be shown. So that's the second charge. Embrace Christ's power through your weakness In charge number three, I'm charging you to do what seems to be the impossible. I'm charging you to treasure Christ as worth more than your life. Treasure Christ as worth more than your life. Now, this feels like an impossible charge because this kind of affection cannot be manufactured. You you can't just flip a switch and say, okay, now I love Jesus more than my life. It can't be manufactured and it can't be microwaved. We get this by seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that God transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And earlier in this passage, Paul told us how we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see it when we read the scriptures. And so that's where the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ emanates. That's where it glows from the scriptures, from your Bibles. And so the way that we fulfill this pastoral charge is we read the scriptures. We read the scriptures. We read them. We study them. We struggle with them. We struggle to understand. We grapple with them. And we look at the scriptures, at where the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ emanates until we see it. You look there until you see it. And this is why we partake of communion, the Lord's Supper, every week in combination with the preaching of God's word. Wherever we can find the glory of Christ, we want to look there until we see it. And this meal, in in combination with the proclamation of God's word, becomes an exhibition of Christ's glory. It displays Christ's glory because we're illustrating the gospel. We're illustrating the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus As often as we eat and drink, we proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. By faith, brothers and sisters, by faith, we fellowship with the risen Christ and with one another at this table. And so if you are a worshiper of Jesus, you are invited to worship him, continue to worship him here at this table. And as you do, I would invite you to ask him to show you his glory so that you may treasure him above all else even more than your own life. And if you're not a worshiper of Jesus, if you have not sworn allegiance to him, confessing his life, death, and resurrection for you by faith alone, if you have not come to him and said, Christ, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm not going to count my works as worth anything. I'm all in. I'm I'm throwing myself upon you and your mercies for your life and death and resurrection to count for me. I have nothing to offer. I'm coming to receive. If you have not done that yet, then please do not take this meal because this meal is for Christians and you're not doing yourself or us any favors by pretending to be one if you're not. Okay, so please don't take it if you haven't done that. Instead, we would invite you 
to watch us fellowship with one another as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That's what we're doing at this table. We're remembering the broken body signified by the bread and the blood of Jesus signified by the cup. So just watch us as we remind ourselves of the gospel, remind ourselves of what is true, and just know, non-believer, that you can get in on all of the promises that we are reminding ourselves of here at this table. We're inviting you to do that. All you need is your need. So I'm going to pray and then ask for the Christians to come down to my left. You'll take from the bread and dip it in the cup and then return to your seat to my right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you need nothing from us. Your word tells us that if you were hungry, you would not tell us since the world and its fullness is yours. You have told us that you do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. That's not the sacrifice you desire from us. We have nothing to give you, Father, but our need. And this, Lord, is what you want from us. You've told us so. Your word says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You want a sacrifice of thanksgiving, Lord. You want us to call upon you in our day of trouble. You want for our deliverance to bring you glory, and we want it too. So please, God, unite our hearts to your will. Give us hearts that are bursting with gratitude as we take this meal together. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I love you, church. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.